Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. What do you do when the pain of loss is so overwhelming that you don't know what to do with yourself? Many of us take that moment to begin a journey into the inner terrain of ourselves, whether we want to or not. Our guest today is here to talk to us about that very journey, one that for him teaches us how to love. David Ord is back for the second time on Authentic Living to talk with us about his new audio, Lessons in Loving, in which we are taking on a journey to the center of our being, to a place where there's unbroken peace, boundless joy, and infinite love. There, in the groundedness of our own essence, we find the creativity to re-image our broken lives. David is the editorial director at Namaste Publishing. He's also the author of Your Forgotten Self, a book that clarifies the character of Jesus as a mirror for the, for the, for the forgotten self, our true essential nature, and the subject of our previous interview with David. David spent his entire life from elementary school forward on a spiritual quest, which led him from his home in Yorkshire, England, to New Zealand, and then to the United States, where he studied at the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley and became a graduate of San Francisco Theological Seminary, and now to his editorial position with Namaste. His writing is deep and yet profoundly touching in this latest release, in which he uses the symbolism found in the journey of the fictional character of the 1943 French book, The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exubery, to help us to look at ourselves in relationship and to consider loss and pain in a new light. So, David, welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We're so glad that we're going to get to talk to you a second time. Nice to be back with you today again, Andrea. Okay, well, let's just jump right in here. Tell me what drove you to this particular topic. Last time you wrote, the last book was on Jesus, uh, the character of Jesus and how he's a mirror for us. What drove you to this topic? One of our uh, editors, Lucinda Beecham, gave me a copy of The Little Prince um, some years ago, which I had never heard of, although I understand that even now it's um, one of the best-selling children's books in the world, though in reality it's not actually a children's book. It only seems that way on the surface. And um, she said that she saw some things in this book that seemed to be deeper than what most people did, and would I take a look and see what I thought? Well, I began reading it, and I wasn't but a few pages in, and I started to see that the entire book was actually symbolism. It was couched as a children's story, but it was a symbol of our lives and how we awaken to who we really are, which is, of course, the prerequisite for beginning to love not only ourselves but also to love other people, and not just romantic love, but um, love in every form, whether it be of our children or our parents or our relatives, or whether it be of uh, people at our work or in our places of worship or our social life. The ability to love deeply and profoundly, and especially, of course, in any kind of romantic relationship. And as I started to unpack these symbols and began sharing them, with other people, they said, oh, you need to write this. And so I did. And we ended up actually doing it as an audio book, which is uh, five CDs, it's uh, seven hours, and publishing it from Namaste. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I'm real glad you did that because I, I've, I've had the opportunity to read that, and, uh, and I really have enjoyed it. 
the message of the little prince uh, y- you say is that a few gr- that few grown-ups have really grown up and uh you talk a little bit about that in the first of the book can you say what you mean by that yes most grown-ups uh are emotionally stuck at a very young age. If you look at the way our whole world runs, it's, it's, um, it's a game of children. Uh, we're not serious about um, human life. We're not serious about this planet and its future. Uh, we, we act like um, babies act, reacting to each other, upset with each other, falling out with each other, trying to control and manipulate one another. This isn't the way that mature people behave. And it's planet-wide. It's a human condition. If we were to put it in the terms that I would put in your forgotten self, whereby I talk about Jesus as the representative of who we are, the image, the reflection of who our real self is, it's that condition known as sin, which means simply it's an archer's term, meaning missing the mark. And when you look at the way our whole world runs, it's, it's a world that is missing the mark when it comes to our authentic humanity. Well, that's the story of the little prince. You might say that the story of Jesus is the story of the little prince in so many ways. They are parallel to each other. And uh, the little prince's story is a journey that all of us have to take. It's actually about an airman, if anyone hasn't read the story of the little prince. It's about an airman who... Um, crashes in the Sahara Desert, and he's a thousand miles from anywhere, and uh, his engine is damaged, and he has only eight days of water supply. And it begins to look increasingly as though he's not going to get out of the predicament he's in, and he is preoccupied with trying to fix his engine in the hope that he can get it started again, but things are not going along too well. When uh, this little fellow from the skies, um, actually from an asteroid, uh, appears to him, and he's on his own journey. And he has, um, on his planet, he has a girlfriend. Now, we're in the land of symbolism, of course, and the girlfriend is a rose. Now, he um, has a hard, hard time getting along with her. They, um, they just fall out. He loves her dearly, but there, there is no way that they can relate to each other because um, she is incredibly narcissistic and he hasn't yet learned how to love someone just as they are. And so after some time with her, he finally gives up, takes off and goes on a tour of seven planets, uh, the last of which is Earth. And um, he ends up in the Sahara Desert after visiting other places, and that's where he meets uh, the airman, and they begin a conversation and a journey together that is a symbol of the spiritual journey we take if we're ever to become enlightened, awakened, conscious. It's a journey into the heart of our own being, and it's a very powerful story um, that becomes the precursor for loving other people because unless we really know who we are, unless we are grounded solidly in an adult sense of ourselves that doesn't childishly react, doesn't take things personally, doesn't get hurt, isn't in pain because of what someone else said, but is able to simply centeredly, calmly, um, sublimely, peacefully 
joyously and lovingly approach uh, every situation that comes up in life so that we are using our head rather than losing our head. And that is the key to loving another person. You know, when, when things go wrong in a relationship, people want the other person to change. Right. And the, the big question is, well, why do you do what you do? Why can't you just stop doing it? It drives me up the wall. Well, what the story of the little prince teaches us is not to ask why do you do what you do, but why does what you do drive me up the wall? And that is a self-confronting um, type of question. We begin to, to see that the journey into consciousness, the journey of spiritual growth, is one of uh, becoming aware of what's going on inside us at such times. And self-confrontation is what drives our growth, not confrontation of the other person. Right. And yet few relationships really do that. Few relationships do people look at themselves and see why this is bending them out of shape, why they're climbing the walls. And, um, and yet when we start doing so, that's when things begin to change. And this book is a guide in doing that, which is why we title um, the book that I've written about it, Lessons in Loving. The lessons are not my lessons. They're coming from the little prince. Right. And uh, they, are, they are wonderful. Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. And you know what? One of the things that you're saying there, as I hear it, is that you're, a part of our immaturity is in if we're asking the other person to change, what we're really saying is you you grow up and, and make my life okay so I can continue to depend on you. That way it makes yeah, it easier. So I don't have to grow up. Yes. Yep, yep absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, great point. So, okay. Um, so part of the journey is going to be facing up to some of our infantile behavior. That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, the little prince um, couldn't face up to his at first. When his rose put on all her antics, he, um, he couldn't handle it. And it, it was in learning to confront himself and in the presence of the airman taking this journey together it, that he finally became fully his own person totally centered in himself to whereby at the end of the story, he is at a place of complete trust in himself and who he is. He has absolute confidence, and he's able to make choices and decisions that are his own and that other people may not approve of, and he doesn't get reactive when they don't approve. Right. So it's, um, it's the most important aspect of being in any kind of relationship is to be able to be well, I love the work of uh, Dr. David Snarch. He uh, wrote a book called Passionate Marriage. And then he has what, in my mind, is an even more wonderful book uh, out uh, more recently called um, Intimacy and Desire. And in it, he talks about differentiation. And differentiation is um, quite different from individuation. It's not just about me becoming me. It's about me being able to be an individual and be very closely present with someone else without them knocking me off center, knocking me off balance. You know, when we get upset at something, we say that someone is beside themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what Eckhart Tolle, of course, calls the pain body. And um, th they have literally been taken over, as it were, possessed by all of the immature undeveloped aspects of them that are highly painful to deal with. 
and they've lost the center of who they really are. And being able to love someone is about being able to find that center, which for most of us got frozen in childhood. The book, of course, uh, starts out, The Little Prince starts out with a description of a little boy who um, loves to draw. But uh, his parents, you know, and society tell him, well, there are far more important things than becoming an artist. Uh, how can you make a living being an artist? And so he has to, um, he has to uh, learn to draw their way, and this restricts it. And then, oh, we'll pick that up after the break. All right. And we're going to be back in just a moment with more from David Ord on Lessons in Loving. Stay tuned. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology. A-I-H-T with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my PhD in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. 
You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. back talking today with David Ord about his new audio, Lessons in Loving, and I have read this as a book um, and uh, really enjoyed it, and one of the things we were talking about just before the break was uh, in the early chapters of the book, uh, an analogy you made to a child who's, who's working with a drawing and how his parents are reacting to that, so I want to continue with that. Yes, uh, when the little boy who loves to draw and thinks of a career as an artist gets to age six, all he can draw is boa constrictors. He can draw them from the outside and the something was powerful because, well, I suppose there's a lot of people who like boa constrictors, but I have to say they're my, not my favorite creature on earth, and they're rather frightening to me. <laughs> um, so, I, I, you know, you see what the imagery is. It's, it's one of how life just squeezes the life out of us, constricts who we really are. And um, when people look at one of his paintings, uh, uh, drawings of a, um, a ball constrictor, what people see is something that looks like a hat. And it's fascinating because back in 1944 in Europe, you didn't go outside without a hat. Um, that was one of the marks of respect in society, that you put a hat on when you went out in public. And so we're talking about conforming with the way society works. And so the little boy who had all of this artistic flair to begin with in his life has now lost that, and by age six, he's pretty well shut down, and all he can do is live this kind of constricted sort of life. And so he shelves his artistic um, um, skills and his, his uh, love of art, and instead he learns about math, and uh, geography and English and so forth. And um, he grows up and becomes a pilot. Now, the reality is that uh, um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote this book in 1944, was one of France's earliest aviators. And in fact, he did crash land and eventually was killed in a plane crash in the Mediterranean, I believe. But um, he... The whole, the whole symbolism is of a, of a little boy who's lost himself. He's lost the joy and delight. There's a wonderful piece in the story uh, that talks about, um, oh, let me see if I can just come up with it here from the book. Yeah, and it's an image of express trains that are racing past a railway switchman. And back and forth, the brightly lit trains rush. And as the little prince watches them, he asks the switchman, about the people aboard these trains. And he, he says, they weren't satisfied where they were. And uh, the switchman answers, well, no one is ever satisfied where he is. And uh, what a powerful image that is of so many of our lives. Absolutely. So as a third express races by, the little prince asks, are they chasing the first travelers? And the switchman <laughs> explains, no, they're not chasing anything. They're sleeping in there, or else they're yawning 
Only the children are pressing their noses against the window panes. And I find that quite a jarring image. Um, when I was a kid, I, whenever we would go to London from Yorkshire on the train, which was in those days, today it's only about an hour 45 journey with these high-speed trains. But in those days, it used to be a four-hour journey. And um, I used to have my head out the window or pressed to the window panes, excited about the whole journey. And you watch all the adults, and they have a little interest in what they're doing. They're doing something else. So it causes me this image to ask myself, am I enthralled with my life like those children are with their train journey? Am I so excited about the life that I lead and the things I do and the people I'm among that I have my nose pressed against life's window panes? And I found that it's possible to float through life quite out of touch with our deepest interests, our deepest needs, our deepest feelings, uh, going through the motions of living and ignoring what it is we really want and what's fulfilling to us, what's satisfying to us, what are our true longings in life. Right, and sometimes our, our, our deepest crises put us back in touch with that longing, don't they? And that's exactly what the crash in the desert is for the airman. Mm-hmm. because he has given up all of this artistic side to him that is who he really is. And now he's out there in the middle of the Sahara, a thousand miles from anyone. No one to help him. And in this crisis of the desert, it, of course, is a mirror of what happens to some of us when we go through a divorce, or we file bankruptcy, or our health collapses, we lose our job, some other crisis in life hits us, that can put us in that desert situation. Now, some of us are quick to put the pieces back together, get our flying machine up in the air again, and uh, ignore what has happened. But when that happens, life will bring us into a new crisis if it's trying to awaken us. And we will repeat these things again and again until we finally end up in a place where we really are in the isolation of the desert, running out of water, and desperate. And that's when the amazing things that are associated with consciousness and becoming enlightened, which is simply the process of beginning to see reality as it really is, our place in reality, our our uniqueness, our connectedness to everything, how we are both separate and yet connected. And I was mentioning earlier David Snarch's new book about intimacy and desire and talking about differentiation, that ability to be close to another person without having to back off so that someone can actually be in my face and I can still maintain who I am and be real and not get reactive and stay peaceful. I'm not in any way threatened by them. That's what the crash of the desert is trying to bring us into, to wake us up, to enlighten us. Absolutely. And I do think there's so much, what you said is just so powerful because we do have a a tendency in uh, Western culture to... Um, think in either or terms, either I'm alone or I'm a couple. And if I'm a couple, I have to give up a portion at least of myself, if not my whole self, in order to maintain that relationship. But if I'm alone, well, then I can't have a relationship, and, I, and then maybe I can be true to myself. And those are yes. absolutely not the truth of, of a healthy, real, authentic relationship. In fact, Andrea, it works in just the opposite way. Uh, Most people, when they run away from a relationship in order to find themselves, 
Um, it's only in relationship that we really begin to find ourselves because what happens is when they come back to another relationship, they find the same challenges are there as were there before, and they're just the same person. And so the interesting thing about the little prince's journey is he doesn't work his own sense of self and who he is out on his own. He does it in tandem with the airman. And it usually takes someone in our life, not necessarily a romantic partner, though that's certainly one of the most intense forms of it, for us to begin to really see in a mirror how much we actually betray ourselves in everyday life, how untrue to ourselves, which is the meaning of sin, missing the mark. It's not a religious term. It's become this silly nonsense term that so many churches use as, you know, having fun in life is bad or something. It's the opposite of that. It's when we miss who we are, the fun-loving, joyous uh, person that we are, and, and we betray ourselves. Um, that's when everything goes wrong. And, of course, people do that in relationships. I mean, I remember when I was 15 and 16 years of age, and I would meet a girl who, you know, would just knock my socks off, and, and she seemed so angelic and so forth. And so if she said she liked Elvis, well, I would naturally say I liked Elvis, whether I liked him or not. Mm-hmm. I actually do like it, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so you would buy the same records, you would say, oh, you liked the same kinds of films and all that. And the reality is it's so horribly inauthentic. And so we put relationships together in this terribly inauthentic way where no one's being real. Everyone's putting their best foot forward, trying to, to catch the other person. It's highly manipulative when you think about it. And uh, the end result of that is that then when they get together, they find that um, all kinds of things don't mesh. But the amazing thing about that, and that's what's so wonderful about the story of the little prince, um, the amazing thing about that is that life takes those situations we create for ourselves out of our neediness and inadequacy. And if we're willing, it uses those very situations to grow us up. Yep. And that's, that's the miraculous, the, the uh, what is the word I want? Um, um, it's just serendipitous how it happens. It's, it's incredible. And I have watched in my own life how the worst choices, the most horrible mistakes I made, became the manure to grow the strawberries of, of really joyous living. Yep. Absolutely. And I've experienced that in my own life and seen it in so many other lives that I've worked with. And, and, you know, the book brings us to so many different points where you talk about how those crises can, can really help us to evolve. And we're going to talk specifically about some of those different points as we move into the next segment of the show. We'll be back in just a minute with more from David Ord on Lessons in Loving. Stay tuned. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desk, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust 
and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. It was a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earned my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Okay, we're back with Authentic Living, brought to you by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. Um, we're talking today with David Ord about his uh, newly released audio, Lessons in Loving. And um, we're, we're talking about the fact that uh, there's definitely a lot of maturity that needs to take place if we're going to develop a real relationship and a lot of authenticity. So you covered a couple of points in the book that I thought were pretty profound. And one of those was... Um, you've told a story about the Universal Monarch, um, and I don't know whether we have time for the whole story or not, but I want to just talk about this idea that we each of us live in a different different reality. So if that's true, how how do we connect in the everyday if we each live in a different reality? Well, of course, uh, part of why we live in a different reality is because we're all coming from the programming that we have received growing up. And that, that programming has caused us to lose our, um, our sense of who we really are. And, um, and yet there is also a sense in which uh, even when we are enlightened, awakened people who are conscious, we all nevertheless see reality from a unique point of view. And it's being able to, it's being able to bring other people into our world who are different from us. I mean, this is what the whole problem is right now between... Uh, so much of the Muslim world and um, Christendom, this tension between um, so many, is the ability to be able to embrace each other and accept difference and uh, and be okay with it. And that comes only when we have a solid sense of self and are not threatened by a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But the the universal monarch is the guy who is on uh, the first planet that the little prince uh, visits, 
And it's interesting that all of these individuals on these different planets are extremely lonely. They're isolated. They're disconnected. And that's because none of them really knows themselves. So as the little prince is approaching this monarch on his planet, uh, the, the monarch's responses are, here's a subject. And, and, and the, the little prince wonders, well, how can he know who I am if he has never seen me before? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the king instinctively thinks of the little prince as a subject because to a king, well, all people are automatically subjects. And so um, seeing the little prince as a subject dictates how the king is going to relate to his visitor. And he doesn't acknowledge him as a unique individual. And he doesn't want to connect with him as a person, person to person, in the way that, um, you know, uh, uh, the book I Thou, um, which is such a classic, talks mm-hmm. about. He's, uh, he's objectifying. He's uh, connecting I, it, instead of I, thou. It's, it's not two real people. So the king sees someone uh, here who exists only to carry out his royal bidding. And to his way of thinking, uh, just to be privileged to enter into a king's service should make the little prince feel important. Well, how many of us is that true of? If we are associated with a certain company or if we uh, work for a certain person, you know, I, um, or, if we, or if we are romantically involved with a certain person, all of those things, we draw a borrowed sense of identity from them. It's like getting a transfusion of self. It's not who we are. We're living in a, in a borrowed sense of self, a reflected sense of self. And that's how the king relates to everybody. He sees them through a particular lens, which is based on his false sense of himself. He isn't a real person, and his role has become um, the entire way he portrays himself uh, in the universe. So that, that's, I think, Andrew, what happens to us in, in everyday life. We, we're no longer real people related. You know, I was just reading, in fact, this morning, in, in, as we were working on the Namaste website on some things, I was reading um, uh, Michael Brown's book, uh, Alchemy of the Heart, which is one that we publish. Mm-hmm. And um, he was talking about how you talk about having a nice day. And uh, he says in this here, he says, uh, by the time we are adults, we are unconsciously nursing a consistent and ever-increasing discomfort within our own emotional body. Yet because we cannot perceive this, we we can't ease it. We build upon this discomfort by unconsciously embracing reactive behaviors to compensate for this condition. Uh, These reactive behaviors become our needs and our wants, and these are all the demanding sorts of ways, you know, we deal with each other in our relationships. Because we've got this discomfort within us because we don't know ourselves in the same way as, as the, the airman had, had a discomfort in himself because who he was was stifled by the time he was age six. So then Michael says, we then unconsciously design our life experience around feeding an appetite for inner relief that can't be satiated because we're not even aware that this is what we're doing. And that's what happens. People fill their lives with emotional drama in order to cover up the sense of emptiness that they feel inside, uh, they become highly emotionally reactive. And that's what goes on between two people. People think, you know, that when couples fight, for example, or friends fight, it's because they're trying to solve a problem. The opposite's true. They're fighting to avoid having to look at the problem and come up with a solution. 
And so all of this drama gets going as a way to make our life feel full, somehow complete, uh, because we're busy in our thoughts and our emotional reactivity. We're preoccupied with thinking with what that person just said or what they just did to me and how could they do that and those awful people and so forth. And we're so preoccupied with that as a way of covering up the void of our own missing, true, feeling self. And so then Michael goes on in Alchemy of the Heart to say, well, people ask, how are you? And we reply, fine, thank you. Or we tell them we are doing okay. Uh, We then say to them, have a nice day. Well, Michael asks, well, what do the words fine, okay, and nice mean? Nothing. They are emotionally, emotionally vacant words that arise in our vocabulary when we are emotionally bankrupt. And that is what the Little Prince's story is doing for us. It is opening us to see how bankrupt we are. And this is so true of this, this monarch, this king on his planet. And there, there is another creature on the king's planet. And guess what it is? It's a rat. <laughs> it's the only other creature up there. What an image of how the, the king, in all his magnificence, oh, and his royal train, by the way, his, his robe, it fills the entire planet so there isn't even anywhere room for a chair for someone else to sit down. You talk about egotistic or narcissistic. And he has, he has um, no ability to really welcome the little prince as a person at all. So the image of the rat of course, is showing us what the, what the um, monarch really feels about himself. And all of his majestic exterior is a cover-up for feeling like a dirty rat inside. Yep. And that brings us to the next uh, uh, symbol that we were going to talk about. We've talked about the heights of our narcissism. We can talk about the flip side of that, which would be our shame. You've, uh, you've also got the analogy that the little prince uh, ran into the drunk um, on one of the planets that he landed on. Yep. And, and uh, you saw that as a symbol for couples who stop trying to communicate and tune each other out and who coexist in a stalemate of bitterness and resentment because the drunk is trying to numb himself out. So talk some more about the shame aspect. And, and, and what I really want to get to is you mentioned something about healing shame, and that's a conundrum for most of us to even put those two words together. So talk to us about yeah. that. Yes. Well, the drunk is a symbol of how millions of people live because alcoholism is merely an extreme form of the way so many of us have become desensitized to our essence, to our, to our true being, to who we really are in, in our deep consciousness. And alcoholics recreate in the present the numbness that they experienced as children when their families weren't interested in the pictures that they drew, in, in their artistic, in, in other words, in their being who they uniquely are. And uh, for a child's essence not to be valued is painful beyond words. And so they numb out that experience and become rather like a non-person. So by living in a perpetual daze, alcoholics, uh, drug users, and so forth, those who use sex in that kind of way, they're avoiding um, making contact with reality in any meaningful way. And um, the drunk says that he feels ashamed so um, it's an interesting conversation, actually. Uh, when the little prince asks the drunk what he's doing, uh, the pitiful fellow explains that he's drinking. So, of course, the little prince uh, always seeks to understand things. He never gives up asking questions until he's gotten the answer that really gets to the heart of it. 
And so, and that, by the way, is a symbol of the self-introspection, the self-confrontation that's required for us to live conscious lives. And so he demands the reason for the drinking, and the drunk replies, to forget. And then the little prince inquires, well, to forget what? Well, to forget that I'm ashamed, the drunk confesses, hanging his head. And the little prince demands, what are you ashamed of? Of drinking, exclaims the drunk, who then lapses into silence for good and doesn't have another word to say. Well, uh, the, the drunk is a symbol of a person who makes no serious effort to grow. In a variety of ways, uh, couples especially, composed of such individuals, um, stop trying to grow. They, they stop communicating with each other. They tune each other out. Actually, they really are communicating very loudly. But, uh, you know, I often hear people say, well, the key to relationships is communication. Well, that ain't necessarily so. Because there's plenty of communication goes on right here, uh, as Dr. David Snarch points out in, in his books on passionate marriage and um, uh, intimacy and desire. Lots of communication. Communication said, I don't want to know who you are. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to relate to you. So the, the drunk is um, ashamed, and by this he means that he feels bad about himself and bad about what others think of him, which is why he has a hard time holding his head up. But this feeling isn't actually shame, it's guilt. And the two are very different. We often say that we feel ashamed, and what we really mean is that we feel guilty. And shame can change lives, but guilt doesn't. And I think the society has long uh, used guilt to try to change people. A lot of churches have done that over the, uh, the centuries. But it's a very poor motivator. Guilt and guilt-tripping are ineffective in getting people to change because it's only the false self, the ego, that feels guilty. And the real self lies buried beneath all of this guilt. And many who appear to turn their lives around as a result of guilt merely exchange one form of addiction for another. They, they may give up caffeine or nicotine, or they may give up drinking, but now they're addicted to the group. They never really become healed so that they are not that anymore. And it becomes their identity. They will say, I am an alcoholic, even though they haven't touched it in 20 or 30 years. Because there has been no death of the old person and the birth of who they really are. It's just a trading of one thing to the other. And it's motivated by guilt. So true transformation doesn't happen. And um, shame is very different from that. Shame, we'll have to come back to after the break, but shame can transform us. Right, absolutely. Okay, well, let's, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment and also about what we do with our, with our uh, partner's faults. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back in just a moment with more Authentic Living. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. It's a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my Ph.D. in metaphysics. 
You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. Skills USA can help. What is Skills USA? Skills USA is life changing. Skills USA is awesome. Skills USA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. Skills USA is amazing. Skills USA is motivating. Skills USA specifically prepares you for the workforce. Skills USA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. Skills USA allows students to connect with business and industry, to manage their education, and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world, and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at skillsusa.org. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back for the last segment of our conversation today with David Ord about his new audio, Lessons in Loving and we were talking just before the break about healing shame, but before we go back to that, I want to just have you, David, if you will, mention to the audience how they might link with you in any kind of way. Well, of course, I'm the editorial director for Namaste Publishing, so I work with all of our authors. And Namaste was founded uh, in order to bring Eckhart Tolle to the world. And then there have been other authors who fill out that message in different ways, uh, added over the years. And um, we are at uh, namastepublishing.com. So it's www.namaste, N-A-M-A-S-T-E, publishing.com. And we have a brand new website up there, and you can read the Daily Compassionate Eye. I write many of those. Sometimes we have guest bloggers. Um, And you can also read our author blogs. Some of them are daily, some of them are weekly, and some a little less often. Um, right now, mine is daily. For anyone who's interested in understanding the symbolism of the Gospels in Holy Week, I'm doing a special series on that right now because I happen to think that some of that symbolism is extremely potent and can be life-transforming if we uh, want to use it. I have a book called Your Forgotten Self, 
um, which has a subtitle, Mirrored in Jesus the Christ. And what it's showing is that the Christ reality is the true nature of all of us, and Jesus is a mirror of that. But it's a deep book in going into what really makes us tick as people, how we can find our true being, um, how we can live lives that aren't guilty, that are fulfilling, uh, that are meaningful in every way. And uh, that's available through any bookstore, or they can order it if they don't have it, or it's available on the Namaste Publishing website, or Amazon, and all of those other sources. And then Lessons in Loving, A Journey into the Heart, is five CDs, uh, a seven-hour, um, which I narrate, and it is, um, hopefully one day it'll be published in, in um, a book form, too, as well as the audiobook. Um but it it's, uh, it's unpacks the meaning of the story of the world prince from cover to cover. And it ought to be, a, I think, most singly powerful book, The Little Prince. Okay. Um, once one really understands it, that I have ever read in terms of a spiritual journey. Okay, wonderful. All right. Well, I want to, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to mention the idea, just sort of if you can briefly tell us, how can shame be healing? Well, what happens, in, uh, Andrea, is when people shame us, as happens when we're growing up, what they're really doing is making us feel guilty. And that doesn't transform us. It may, it may enable us to make some changes, but it doesn't fundamentally transform us. The only real transformation that ever comes in a person's life is when they see it for themselves. And when a person comes to awareness of the way that they are acting is out of line with what they truly feel and who they really are, then there is that sense of shame arises for living in a way that is less than who I am. And that is healing shame. When you, heal, when you experience healing shame, you stop believing all the negative messages that you heard in childhood. A uh, message that, that told you you weren't good enough, that you were destined to be a failure, that you were hopeless. And at last, ashamed of believing such things about yourself, you affirm that your essential being is good, not bad. Now, that's the whole message. Okay. All right. Powerful to begin to see for yourself how you are not being true to yourself. That's what changes us. So when you catch yourself in the act of self-betrayal and you wish, you say to yourself, wow, I can't believe I did that, then that's when that's, you begin to heal. That's healing shame. Yep. Okay. All right, so just real briefly again, how, what do we do to handle our pa- partner's faults? We, we All of our partners have faults, and we don't have any. So how do we handle our partner's faults? Well, I think the way to handle our partner's faults is by first getting to the place that we're not reactive to them. Okay. There is no way to address them in terms of bringing change as long as we are reacting to them. And when we begin to see these things in the way that Michael Brown portrays them in the presence process, that they are actually happening intentionally in our life. And that's a really interesting and different concept, that that we are drawing these behaviors to us because they are meant to reflect something about ourselves. Once you see that they're not about the other person, that they're just messengers, then you can begin to do something about them because you, you start to look at what are they saying to me about me. And you realize you are projecting stuff onto people who are reflecting back to you stuff in yourself that you're disowning and are not taking responsibility for. 
So what I do in a situation like that is I first allow myself to see what I am doing, what is being mirrored in the other's behavior, that they have come into my life sort of like a play out there, a piece of theater out there, that is, is something I'm meant to observe and see. This is telling me something about myself. Then I make the internal adjustments of seeing where I'm coming from childish behavior, and I, and I take the step of growing up into mature behavior. Now, once that's done, you can, in the nicest way, just say to someone, uh, you know, um, this behavior is something that crosses my boundaries, and I would appreciate such and such. You can't force it on them. Ultimately, you have a choice. You either want to be with them or you don't, you know? If someone keeps, let's say, an example from my own past, someone wants a a particular kind of cover on the bed uh, when they leave for the day and um, and they want to put it on before you've sat on the bed to, to dry your toes after you've gotten out of the shower or something and they get furious with you. Well, you know, if you're, a, if you're a sensitive person, you're going to listen to what they're asking of you. It's perfectly reasonable to sit in a chair instead of on the nice um, quilt they got from their great-grandmother. But if someone persists in sitting in it and yet they're you enjoy so much of their life, and you've asked them in the nicest way, well, you know, there is only one thing you can do. You can decide whether you want to live with a cover or with a person. We can't change other people. We have to change ourselves. Right, right. And acknowledging that, uh, that, that we're responsible for our own change is a big deal. So, okay, well, we have really enjoyed talking with you today, David, and thank you so much for participating in our program today and for, for for doing the book itself. It's really great. So appreciate that very much. Thank and, you so uh, much, Andrew. Next week we're going to be talking to Dr. Judith Orloff about her newly released book, Second Sight. So tune in for that. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.